Please take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews 13. We're finally into this final chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, looking at verses 1 through 3 this evening. Throughout the address that we have been studying, Paul has been focused upon faith, calling his Hebrew audience to understand the tremendous superiority of the new covenant in Christ's blood to the old covenant rooted in the law of Moses, warning God's people, if you recall from the last two weeks with the the very heavy warning, our God is a consuming fire, that last verse in Hebrews 12, warning the people of that, that if, if indeed this covenant, the covenant, this new covenant in Christ's blood, if its power and its promises are so very much superior to that which has gone before, then we dare not reject its obligations and its responsibilities. And to do so will, will come with grave consequences, not the consequences of hellfire, but most certainly the consequences of that loss before the throne on the day of judgment. And last time we were together, we considered that very idea as we talked about in Hebrews 12. So we have been warned. And as is somewhat common in Paul's epistles, and I think you're going to see this evening um, some, some more proofs or some more reasons why I, I do believe that Paul uh, wrote this or, or, or spoke it, as the case may be. Uh, we see in this final address to the recipients a list of commands, which uh, he doesn't necessarily do a lot of teaching in, but more simple statements, statements of instruction, one right after another, kind of down the list. Do this, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And this is exactly what we find in Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to find it this week, and we'll be going through Hebrews 13 in that manner, uh, covering small portions of Scripture uh, as we get to individual commands that are not necessarily connected one to another, but rather are uh, more a little more disjointed, you might say, running through the last things on his mind before he finished up uh, his time with, uh, with, with the people unto whom he's writing. Call to remember some things, and, and the commands are short, the commands are simple, but they are uh, quite, um, quite worthy of our time nonetheless. So in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, the Bible says this, let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. So three commands that we're studying together this evening, beginning with uh, such a simple command, let brotherly love continue. Now, there are two general words translated love in the New Testament. Uh, Some will talk about the three Greek words for love, and there are indeed three Greek words for love. However, only two of them exist in the New Testament. The third is in the Greek, but it is not in the New Testament. The two words that we find are agape, and phileo, that would be uh, um, their, um, uh, the, a, a singular form, right? There's several different forms that you might find uh, that pertain to those words, but that's the primary uh, form of the words agape and phileo. Now, the common distinction that's made between them in various uh, preaching is that agape love is divine love and phileo love is more of an earthly love or, as we'll see this evening, a brotherly love. And that's true to one extent, we might say. However, I don't really like that distinction. Uh, the problem 
problem with it is that we don't really see it play out that way in the New Testament. Jesus uses both forms of the word. He uses both forms of the word, both in regard to God and in regard to man. And there are even times where he somewhat uses them interchangeably. So I don't really like to think of them in that way as I try to parse what may be the difference between an agape love and a phileo love. If there is, in fact, uh, um, a, a particular difference, what I see is a little bit of a more nuanced distinction where I would say that agape love is a love that is manifest in sacrifice and a phileo love is a love that is manifest in loyalty. Agape love, a love manifest in sacrifice. Phileo love, a love manifest in loyalty. And um, that, that's generally how I try to think of it. You don't agree with me, that's fine. It's not something that we find in the Word of God particularly. But in this context, when, when uh, Paul says, let brotherly love continue... We actually see this as a derivative of that phileo love, as we might expect. And it's, it's in fact, the word Philadelphia. Philos being love, uh, and then adelphos meaning brother. You put those two together and you get this idea of brotherly love. So we have this command. Let brotherly love continue or let it remain. And in this, Paul is acknowledging in the text, he's acknowledging that this is something that his listeners did well, that they have had a great love one toward another, and he's encouraging them to continue in this love. Now, if we try to place this into an historical context just a little bit, of course, we don't exactly know where and when uh, this letter is being written or being preached, as the case may be, but it is to a Hebrew audience, and if we recall what, what had happened in the church in Jerusalem throughout those years of the apostles' ministry, you know that they were difficult years for the church. You know that the church in Jerusalem was going through a great amount of persecution, a great amount of trial, so much so that Paul went throughout all of uh, Galatia and Macedonia and Achaia, taking an offering for the church at Jerusalem in order to help them because they were truly, truly having a hard time of it. And so in those situations, and we'll talk a little bit more about if that historical context is there, this makes quite a bit of sense. In those sorts of situations, brotherly love is not usually the hardest thing to find, right? When, when people are having a hard time and there is something such as the gospel of Jesus Christ to unify them, brotherly love is going to be easier to come about than, say, when you're sitting and things are going well and, and everybody has reason to find and nitpick at each other all the time. So we ask this question then, let brotherly love continue. And we think through this, but, but the question to ask is, what is brotherly love? If we're going to obey this commandment, let brotherly love continue, or let lo brotherly love remain, and we're thinking through that, well, the first question that we have to ask is, is there brotherly love? But before we can even ask that, we have to know what brotherly love is. And in that, we get no particular instruction in Hebrews. Hebrews 13 is not going to help us much because he's just running through one after the other, command, command, command. But both Peter and Paul use this word in other contexts, and they give us insights, if just a little bit, into this concept of brotherly love. I really like what we can find in Romans chapter 12 about it, and keep, keep an eye on Romans 12, because we're going to be back here in just a few minutes. As a matter of fact, we're going to be back here both in verse 2 and in verse 3. But in Romans 12, 9 through 12, the Bible says this, let love be without dissimulation, that means hypocrisy, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, here, in honor preferring one another. 
Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. So Paul runs down a list of commands to the church here in Romans 12. And this is a list of commands, particularly regarding one another. He says, let your love be without dissimulation. I already said that word means hypocrisy, a true love, not a false love, not a pretentious love, a love which abhors evil and cleaves to that which is good. That is all love, right? You don't have love without truth. The truth in love. If you're not telling the truth and you're not loving the one unto whom you're interacting or with whom you're interacting. So abhorring that which is evil and cleaving that which is good to that which is good is actually an extension of a love that is without dissimulation or without pretense. And then we see this idea here. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. A true and deep affection, not a pretentious love toward one another. And then as he continues, he says, in honor, preferring one another. Brotherly love is a love which holds the brethren in high regard, in high loyalty, a preference one toward another. Now, Peter says a very similar thing in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. And recall that 1 Peter is a book of suffering. It is a book about persecution. It's a book about how to handle persecution. It's, about, it's a book about how to handle suffering. And he says here, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. So notice the thing that connects these two passages together. If we take what Paul says about brotherly love and we take what Peter says about brotherly love and we were to draw a Venn diagram about their attributes, the thing that would be in the middle of that Venn diagram that they both share in common is this idea of an unhypocritical love, a true love, an unfeigned love. So that as we prefer and honor one another in accordance with these exhortations in Romans 12, we do so in a way that is honest, not according to compulsion, but desire, not half-heartedly, but with a pure heart fervently. And this is what we see when we see the biblical presentation of brotherly love. It is an unfeigned love. It is a unpretentious love. And Paul acknowledges here, as I said in Hebrews 13, that the listeners have been doing that well. And he commands them to continue in this virtue. He exhorts them to continue. And as I said, we don't know a whole lot about Paul's audience here. But there have been indicators, particularly in chapter 12, that these believers may have been going through some difficulty, possibly some persecution. If they were the church in Jerusalem, they were definitely going through persecution. Perhaps Paul is speaking to them. And in doing so, calling them to continue in this self-sacrificial love that had defined the persecuted church in the region. If we think about how that church began, where they sold their goods, they had all things in common. They were seeking to help one another in, in truly deep ways. And this is often the hallmark of a persecuted church where the sorrow and suffering of the group compel them to infold into one another. And in that they all understand their suffering, it compels them to rally. Now you and I can't relate to that as it relates to the Western church. Maybe some of you have been able to go to parts of the world where you've experienced the persecuted church or uh, uh, experienced the underground church. I spent a little time in China and got to see the underground church there. Um, I've never been to a persecuted church context. 
It's entirely possible that you and I might be in a persecuted church context uh, before the end of our lives. But it's also possible that God will preserve the peace and prosperity of the Western church for generations to come. And it is in this context, the non-persecuted church, where brotherly love, again, becomes a little bit more difficult. Where we're not knit together by mutual suffering, by mutual loss, where we are not so uh, earnest toward the things that really matter because they're the only things we have time to care about that we're able to care about all the little things that, all, all the, 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 little, the little thorns that can get in our shoe, right? And yet we are still called, nonetheless, by the word of God to find this pure-hearted affection one for another. To see one another in a very real sense, is family, brotherly love, and to hold one another in honor and in preference. But what does this look like practically? Well, to understand this is to draw upon the biblical picture of the church as the family of God. Many families in Western culture live by that adage that blood is thicker than water, right? The idea here is that even if I don't really like my parents or I don't really like my siblings or I don't really like my child in in that sense, uh, that I will bend over backward for them when they're in need, right? That when push comes to shove, if there's a need, I may not like you, but I love you, right? I'm there for you because that's what family does. And that's kind of the idea here. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are knit together. By the, in, into this thing called the family of God. And for we who are in Christ, who have accepted Jesus Christ as, as our Savior, we have a tremendous amount more in common than we have different. You may be very different from the other people that are around you. We, all have, we are all very different, are, not, are we not, in this, in this body of believers. We have different interests. We have different uh, uh, flavors. We have different personalities. Uh, we have uh, different economic statuses. We have lots of differences about us. And yet, in Christ, we have quite a bit more in common than we have different. And this is the idea. So Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, but notice this last bit, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Do good unto all men, yes. It is our commission and our privilege to seek unto the good of all men, to be a blessing. We think of the Good Samaritan, right? In the parable of the Good Samaritan. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan to show who the neighbor is, right? And the neighbor is those who are around you. But notice Paul says, especially unto them that are of the household of faith. If have love to all men, do good to all men, but especially have brotherly love. Let brotherly love continue. This is a preference idea that if two people are telling me two different things and I'm choosing uh, from among them, I will default to my brother in Christ. That if I only have so many resources to distribute to the needs of others, I will prefer the need of my brother in Christ. Now, as I say all of this, there presents a, a bit of a problem in Western culture, and that's that a very large number of people in this culture are, who are entirely dismissive of scriptures are yet Christian in name. A very large number of people who bear the marks of morality, who sound Christian and look Christian, are in fact not Christians. 
See, in a persecuted culture, that's not a problem. It's not hard identifying who the Christians are because everybody has skin in the game. Because if you're in a persecuted culture, you're not going to be crazy enough to claim to be a Christian when you're not a Christian if claiming to be a Christian means you lose your building or you lose your home or you lose your, your uh, family or you lose your job or you lose your life, right? That's not something that is alluring. Therefore, uh, there's not a problem with uh, um, dealing with a tremendous amount of false, f- false converts in the persecuted church. If a person is willing to step into that shame and willing to step into that suffering and willing to step into that loss that defines the church in a culture of persecution, there's a good chance that they're genuine. It doesn't always happen, I would, I would imagine. And particularly among teachers, I'd imagine false teachers are still something that, that the church has to contend with, even in a persecuted church context. But persecution has a really good way of weeding out the fakers. Now, we don't have that luxury. And so in our context, we have other things that come into play in order to um, bring about a a brotherly love context within which we can operate freely. Now, in our church, we've chosen to do this through church membership, that though there are no direct biblical commands unto church membership, it exists in Western society and, and, you know, various churches have it for various reasons, but rationally and properly, It exists as a means of protecting the body from a number of dangers. And one of those is that the membership affords a layer of accountability and commitment by which we can have a confidence to commit ourselves to those who have expressed both the desire and the will to bind themselves to us. So I bind myself to you and you bind yourself to me. And in doing so, we have the confidence to be able to exercise this brotherly love commandment in a context that has been, as it were, Vetted, maybe is the word, where there has been a recognition of the fruit of one's life and not just the recognition of the fruit of Christianity, but also a, a, a verbal or a stated willingness to bind ourselves one to another. And that binding one to another is that brotherly love. Now, of course, our determined brotherly love can and, and, and probably should extend well beyond the doors of this church, right? To those that you know who are believers, who love the Lord, uh, who you have interacted with, and, and you recognize them to be a part of the body of Christ. And of course, brotherly love extends to them as well. And our good should naturally even beyond that appear to all men. But as Paul says here, especially unto the household of faith, we recognize that this concept of brotherly love, as Paul commanded it, as Paul sought unto it, as we see in Romans 12, and then as we impose all of those different Pauline writings upon Hebrews chapter 13, the idea that we elevate those who are among us, who are approved, who we have a mutual accountability, we have bound, each other, bound ourselves one to another, and there's going to be disagreements, and there's going to be things that are... are um, are going to be off-putting about personalities and about directions and about whatever else, but to those who love one another, who recognize the need for accountability, who recognize the need for support, and who have willingly bound themselves one to another in this bond of Christ, we are to prefer one another. Let brotherly love continue. Verse 2. 
Paul says, be not forgetful to, uh, to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, the first part of this verse is not surprising, not controversial, not difficult at all. In fact, it's a natural continuation, in a sense, of what Paul said in verse 1. Uh, so we, we saw in, in um, Galatians chapter 6 that we are to be good to all men, and especially to them that are of the household of faith. And then here we have in Hebrews chapter 13, let brotherly love continue. That's the idea of that inter-church love, of that love of the brethren one toward another. And then we see that broadened a little bit, but also be not forgetful to entertain strangers. Now, uh, the word entertain strangers here is the same word that's translated hospitality in, guess where? Romans 12 again. So we, uh, I'm going to take you back to Romans 12, and you're going to see this. We've already read Romans 12, verses 9 through 12. Now I'm going to read to you Romans 12, verse 13, which says, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. This is the only other time this word is used in the New Testament. Right in the same context as the word that we just saw, brotherly love, which is only used five times in the New Testament. And here we find a more clear and a normal transition of the word being translated hospitality. The call here being that the followers of Christ have a propensity to care for the needs of one another, but then also to extend that hospitality to those who are around them, to extend that open hand to those as they are able, to giving of their resources to bless others in need. Now let's carry this idea back into Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers. Uh, be not forgetful to exercise hospitality would be a fine translation of this. Now the reason why the King James translators chose to say entertain strangers is specifically because of the second half of this verse. And we'll talk about that more in just a moment. But as you think about this idea, a willing and an open mind and an open hand to share you and yours with those that are around you. Now, this would be especially important in a context of persecution, right? In, in difficult times, with the remnant being scattered and many being in need of assistance. But as I said, why, why translate it entertain strangers? Well, in this next phrase, setting aside the angels part for just a moment, if I am hospitable toward you, I know, and, and you are hospitable toward me, right? So I entertain, I'm, ho I'm hospitable, and I have you over to my house, and I support you and whatnot, and, and we're, we're open before you. Well, I, I know you. You know me. I know exactly who you are. I know what your needs are. I know maybe even how directly to meet those needs. Now, this does not in any way lessen the idea of hospitality when I show it, but you are not an unknown quantity if I am showing you hospitality. But the implication of Paul's statement is that you are entertaining someone unawares, right? Someone that is not a known quantity. And so this is why the King James translators translated it to entertain strangers. Why? Well, because the implication of the second half of this verse is that whoever it is that I am, I am engaging in hospitality toward is enough of an unknown quantity that they might be an angel unawares. And we'll talk about what that means here in just a moment. But the fact that there is an unknown quanti or quality to the person with whom you're engaging is why they translated this to entertain strangers. 
And the implication in this statement is that you might, out of a determined obedience to the Christian principle of hospitality, bless someone of significantly greater importance than you might understand and thereby be a help to them in their work for God, though perhaps unknown to you. So that is the idea here. And this is why the translators impose this idea of entertaining strangers upon a word that simply means hospitality. And I think it's a a fine interpretive decision based upon the context. Okay, now let's talk about the controversy here. Angels. The word translated here, angel, is a word which more broadly means messenger. Now, there's 185 occurrences of this word in the New Testament. And of those 185 occurrences, only seven of them The King James translators translate as messenger rather than angel. But it's sufficient to know that not every use of the word in the New Testament denotes a spiritual angelic being. It can, in fact, denote as well a, a material person, a person who is simply a messenger, one of God's messengers to speak of the things of the Lord. So in that context, uh, I could rightly be called an angel, right? The idea of a messenger of the Lord from me to you, taking the word of God and, 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 and sending it to you. If God had a message for you and I was the one that God used to deliver that message, whether that be from the pulpit or whether that be someone simply coming up to you on a Sunday morning and say, hey, brother, I've been praying for you and I just wanted to give you these verses or they shoot you a text in the middle of the week and it's, it blesses your socks off because it's exactly what you needed for that day and they were praying and the Lord laid something on their heart and they shared that with you. And that's, that's the idea of an angel, right? That's the idea of a messenger, someone who is taking a message of the Lord to you and is giving it to you and you've, you have received it and you said, that is clearly from the Lord. I needed that. So we do see that idea and, and thus to that end, we regard that it's not necessary that when we see the word angel in the New Testament, that it inherently means a, a spiritual being, an, a, an angelic spiritual being. We talked about this quite a bit when we were in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 with the, the letters to the seven angels of the churches. The question being, are those angels actually um, d- you know, spiritual beings or are we talking about simply the messengers in the churches, perhaps the pastors or those who even brought the letters um, to those churches? And there's question marks to be had there. So we regard this as a possibility. But as we've already said, the word being used to speak of an earthly messenger is without question, even if we re interpret some of the times that the King James uses the word in the New Testament, it is without question the minority use to use it in, re- in reference to a, a, a person rather than to an angelic being. And then we start to dig a little more, and you say, well, maybe in the book of Hebrews, Paul has had a tendency to use the word angel to mean a human rather than a spiritual being, but that would not be the case. The word has been used... 11 times so far in the book, this being the 12th time, and the other times the word has very clearly meant spiritual angelic beings. So these things both lend themselves to the conviction that Paul is speaking about spiritual beings, but if this is the case, then the actual insight into what Paul might be saying here is limited. The implication would be that God has ordained angels to walk among men, looking like men, which we know they can do, interacting with men, which we know they can do, and this for a purpose of which we have very little insight other than to know that 
they're accomplishing some purpose of God. And if this speaks not of a spiritual angelic being, but rather of an earthly messenger, well, the idea, uh, we can wrap our minds around the idea a little better. The idea is that somebody is passing through or you're ministering to somebody and it's not even necessarily a completely unknown quantity. Maybe that's the man who is in the church who sees a young man in the church who might be uh, struggling or the Lord lays that young man on his heart and he begins to disciple that young man and that man ends up being used by God in a unique way in the future uh, and, and he was instrumental in that as he entertained strangers, right? As, as he was hospitable toward this young man and thus brought about the means by which for this young man to be provided for unto some end. That unbeknownst to you, you have been hospitable toward a man of God, commissioned of God to take a message to some people. And by your hospitality, you have had a a part in facilitating his message and thereby there are rewards for said thing. And that interpretation um, makes a little more sense from a physical perspective, not as much from a language perspective. It's a bit easier to contemplate because God has given us a little more insight into how he can use us to bless someone along their way unto an end of them reaching other people for Christ or whatever the case may be. But either way, regardless of which one it is, whether or not angels walk among us in a literal sense, or whether or not this is speaking of earthly human messengers who God has commissioned and we are able to have a part as they go along, I, I, I really honestly don't know what's being said there, um, But either way, the point is that which I have already said, that you might, out of a determined obedience to the Christian principle of having an open hand and an open heart, bless someone of significantly greater importance to the Lord's work than you might understand, and thereby bless God in a way, though perhaps unknown by you, through your hospitality toward others, and so be rewarded in ways that you never would have been expected. And so we're called among men, and especially among those who are of the household of faith, to show honor and preference, to show hospitality, determining in our hearts to maintain a mindset of openness, a welcome disposition toward others regarding personal possessions. And let us never lose sight of this. Let us never be afraid, be hesitant in a deep-seated way, to show an open hand of love, of generosity, of care when the opportunity presents itself. Now, that doesn't mean we'd be reckless. And in the church, like we've said, we have procedures in place both to to, uh, maximize the capacity for confidence of brotherly love through membership and and, uh, then to uh, extend other opportunities for us to show um, our hospitality as a church together. And then, of course, individually, uh, all of us, no, no doubt, do more. But let us be sure that we are. Let us be sure that we are living with an eye toward others, with an eye toward that love toward that grace, toward that hospitality toward others. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Third and final reminder this evening, verse three. Remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity, as being yourselves also in the body. Now this verse calls our minds back to the fact that those under the sound of Paul's voice were potentially in a persecuted group. It lends credence, in fact, to the idea that they were in a persecuted group. 
to the end that Paul exhorts them to keep in remembrance those brethren who were for the sake of the gospel in bonds. And to do so with such fervency of spirit that you remember them as if you were with them. Now, the idea here is not that you languish in misery in anticipation of the sorrow that your brethren in bonds are in. That you say, well, they're in bonds and they're not getting any food, so I'm just going to starve myself and I'm going to sit in shackles all day and be sad too. That's not the idea per se. But rather that you purposefully recall them to your mind so regularly that you would be, that you would not call them to your mind more so if you were in fact sitting there with them. That's kind of the idea here. A call to determined remembrance of those believers who are suffering, who are persecuted, and who are in adversity. Knowing that we are members of the same body, of the same spirit, of the same head. Now, once again, the application to this in our circles is not going to be necessarily to those who are around us, at least as it relates to persecution. Uh, nobody in our church, we don't have any members who right now are in bonds, um, and we are going to be remembering them as they're in bonds. And specifically, of course, that would be for um, bonds as it relates to um, Christ, right? Not, oh, so-and-so got caught and now he's in jail. And that's not what we're talking about either, right? But also he says here, them which suffer adversity. And this one draws a little bit closer to that, that which we can remember. A thought which is a natural extension of those which Paul has already given. That's why I put these verses together, in fact, this evening, because they do relate to each other. As I determine in my heart to let brotherly love continue, to pour myself and invest myself in you, and you pour yourself and invest yourself in me, and I'm always in mind to eager to be, to be blessing God's people, to show hospitality. I likewise keep in my mind a determined disposition of prayer and longing for the protection and wellness of those who are persecuted for the faith, as well as for those who are in suffering. And once again, this concept relates to another one of Paul's teachings. You want to guess where it is? Romans 12. You want to guess which verse? The next verse in the context, Romans 12, verse 15. I think I skipped verse 14, actually. But verse 15 says this, Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Do you want to know why? One of the reasons why I think Paul probably wrote, or at least was speaking Hebrews, because in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1, 2, and 3, we get Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 15, right down the line. See, you and I are a part of the body of Christ. Pain in one part of the body affects more than just that part of the body. We even talked about that this morning, right? As it relates to the idea of, of a husband as being the head of the wife and the wife being the body. The idea that when pain affects one part of the body, the whole body is actually affected by that pain. When my knee hurts, it affects my ability to walk. As it affects my ability to walk, my feet are going to start to hurt. My back is going to start to hurt. That's going to affect my ability to think because everything's hurting on me. Now I can't think and I can't walk and I can't sit and I can't stand and I'm not a happy person. When my eye hurts, it affects my ability to navigate the world around me. It can give me a headache. A headache means I can't think. Um, and, and, and the same process, right? Our body is connected to itself and one part of the body affects the rest. Well, when we love each other as we ought, when brotherly love is continuing, when we're exercising said hospitality, when God knits our hearts together in this unity and this love, and when one rejoices, then we all rejoice. And when one suffers, we all suffer. It's been a kind of a difficult six months for this church. 
We were talking the other day about all the things that have happened in this church really since July 3rd, right? Since my collapse, it's like things have, there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of things that have happened in this church since, since July 3rd of this last year. People have been sick, people have been tired, people have had, have had uh, um, uh, um, illnesses bubble up that, that uh, were, have been bad but have gotten much worse. Um, it's just been a really hard time. And that's caused the entire body. We, the whole body has felt it. Right? The whole body has reeled, in, in a sense, from the difficulty of the individuals, and, and that's natural. That as we have knit ourselves together in love, that when the body is struggling, when one part of the body is struggling, then everybody feels it. What are we supposed to do with this, though? Remember. Let that, let that turn to prayer. Let that turn to bringing these needs before the Lord. That on a Sunday, when you walk away saying, well, you know what? There was still good teaching, and, and there was still good fellowship, but... So-and-so was missing, but we're, 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 we're missing out on this part of the body. Remember that. And really, that's the essence of these three verses in Hebrews 13. Mutual investment in one another, because Christ has designed the church to be this way. In honor, preferring one another. To be good, especially to the household of faith. To be given to hospitality among God's people. To remember those in bonds that suffer. Again, we don't have that here, but we can certainly pray for the persecuted church, can we not? Syria, Egypt, Malaysia, China, Philippines, all around the world. And then, of course, remembering those who are in affliction. Rejoicing with them that do rejoice, weeping with them that weep. The picture here is of, in, of, of such a deep investment that when one, when, when, when one individual or family in the church finds great success, we all rejoice. When one individual or family in the church is struggling, we all weep. Because we love each other. And it's not an unfeigned love. It's not a pretentious love. It's not with dissimulation. It is genuine. That is what the church is supposed to look like. Now, it doesn't cripple us, but we feel it. And this is God's design for the church. Now, I talked earlier in the sermon about the fact that these concepts are significantly more natural in the persecuted setting. In the persecuted setting, these things will, uh, th- these verses make a-, a tremendous amount more sense. And in one sense, they're more accessible. I wouldn't say they're easier, but they're more accessible for the people in a persecuted context. Perhaps more difficult to connect to a church in a context that is so free of the cares and the dangers of people retaliating against us in a meaningful way because of our faith. But that doesn't by any means imply that these truths don't apply to us. And so let's think about this together. And as I mentioned, first we do think about the persecuted church. Just because we are not in persecution here at Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota, does not mean that there are not Christians all around the world who are in deep persecution. Very much to the contrary, let us never forget those large portions of the world's Christianity where Christianity is illegal and they are hiding and they flee for their lives and it is a struggle to be a follower of Christ. Don't forget that there are people around the world dying for their profession of Christ. 
families that are being separated. Men languishing in prisons for preaching the gospel. And that's not too far away even, is it? It's just a little bit north of us. All for the faith that we can boldly proclaim without fear. And of course, we don't know these men. And we don't know these women. We can join mailing lists and you can get info about the persecuted church. And if you're not on any of those, it might be a good thing to do. Voice of the Martyrs, Smyrna Ministries, those sorts of things. It's helpful to gain a context for, those, for, for what's happening around the world. You can look at pictures and you can read stories. But the natural disconnect between our part of the world and theirs is going to be there. But you can still pray for the suffering church. You can keep them in remembrance. And there are things in the scriptures that we are commanded to pray for. We prayed for them both this morning. Matthew chapter 9, verse 37, Jesus says, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. It ought to be a regular part of your prayer life to pray that the Lord would send forth laborers into his harvest. Jesus, that, that Jesus gives us a model prayer, right? And then we see his prayer, and we can read Daniel's amazing prayers in, in the book of Daniel, and we can read Jeremiah's prayers, and, and we can read Job's prayers, and we can see models to pray for and, and, and templates of the things that, that are, are worthy of our prayers. But there are not a whole lot of things that the Bible says explicitly, pray this, right? All of the, the liturgies and such from, from other liturgical denominations, uh, those are things that their, that their denominations or their, par, their, their, their wings of Christianity have said, you must pray this. But they're not things that the Bible says you must pray. Jesus says, after this manner pray ye, right? But what does Jesus, what has Jesus commanded us to pray for? Well, labors into his harvest, Matthew 9. We talk regularly about 1 Timothy 2, right? 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, which commands us to pray for our leaders. But we also see this idea not to forget those who are in bonds, to remember them. Something that we ought to pray for and pray for regularly. Now let's bring this closer home. We are not in an age of commitment. Outside of sports teams and military, there are very few physical societies left of people who bind themselves to one another through shared commitment to values or even interests. Most of these things, most, most communities happen online now where you're in a group of a bunch of faceless screen names, people who are more or less anonymized. People are not even required to reveal their own faces anymore to go shopping, right? They can hide them behind surgical masks if they'd like. And this, spread, this trend has spread in many ways to churches as well. There's a tendency, especially among we who would call ourselves separatists, to attend church with your feet kind of turned toward the door a little bit, right? Investing in the church to the extent you feel it directly benefits you, but having no will to put out or to be stretched or to ask to invest in others who may not be investing in you or at the expense of yourself. Now, as I say this, I say this generally, because if I were writing to this church and I were commanding this church, I would feel very confident in saying, as Paul says, let brotherly love continue. I believe this is a church that manifests a tremendous 
spirit of investment one in another. And I thank God for that. But to the extent that we are hesitant to invest, it's no mystery as to why. Investment is difficult, isn't it? It's not uncommon to end up giving more than you feel you've received. Investment makes you vulnerable. Vulnerable to have to hear things that you don't want to hear. Because people love you and they're going to tell you what you need to hear, even though you don't want to hear it. And that's no fun. Investment makes you vulnerable to being hurt by those in whom you've trusted or in whom you've invested. You pour time and you pour effort into people only to watch them turn their back on you, ignore you, not requite you at all. And that hurts. Someone that you've trusted and someone that you've loved, and then there's an alienation, and there's an offense, or they take that love and that trust that you've put in them and they use it to uh, hurt you because the people that you are most vulnerable to are the people that can hurt you the most. And that's not fun. And for those who have experienced these sorts of hurts, these sorts of vulnerabilities being taken advantage of in some way, shape, or form, it's not something that you are eager to do again, I'm sure. Because <laughs> it's, it, it's painful. And we all understand that. But let us also remember, this is God's design for the church. Not my design for the church. Not your design for the church. The failures and the shortcomings of men in regard to the church are not a reflection on God's design. They're a reflection on man's failures. God's design, God's will, God's intent is not reflective of man's taking advantage of vulnerabilities of man's failures to live it out. To cast off God's design because of bad experiences or abuses is to give up on God's blessings because of the failures of men. And that doesn't make any sense. I was talking with Joel a little bit this afternoon after the morning service, and Alyssa actually, and we were talking about the idea that for a church to work properly, the key component is humility. And that it's not easy and that there are those times where you see a church and it, it goes bad and, and things go wrong and people get hurt and there's sorrow and there's frustration and there's fear and there's anger and there's all of these things. But we know that only by pride cometh contention. And so for whatever it is we may or may not have in any given church setting, if we have a humble love toward one another, we're going to do okay. Because that's God's design. And the fact is, Christian, we need each other. We need each other more than any of us realizes. And yeah, we live in an independent culture and we're still living in a relatively independent time. Again, if things go bad, we're going to realize how much we need each other really quickly. But let's not wait till things go bad to realize that. Let's not wait till things go bad to really start to maximize our investment one in another. We need to invest. We need to be invested in. You need to be invested in. 
I'm kind of a loner by, by, by nature. But I need to be invested in too. And maybe you're a loner or maybe you, you seek out investment and that's not a hard thing for you. But we all need it. And not only that, but we all need to invest the rewards of investing in one another. Not just the rewards physically of investing in one another. The Bible says it's more blessed to give than to receive, and, and you all have experienced those rewards, but the divine rewards of aligning with God's design. They're great. It's what God has commanded, and he has not commanded this arbitrarily. He's done so because this is his intent for the church, and this is where his, his design for the church can be fully realized as we let brotherly love continue, as we are not forgetful to show hospitality to entertain strangers, as we remember them that are in bonds and them that suffer adversity. Pastor, I don't want to be hurt again. Well, that may be a good reason to change the way that you unite. Maybe not putting yourself into the same kind of situation as before. Maybe not putting yourself into the same kind of church situation as before. As a matter of fact, that's kind of why our church is a little bit different. That's one of the reasons why our church is a little bit different. I went through some hard times when I was younger with a, with a church split, and several of you have as well. You've seen a living organism, a church, you've seen it die. I have too. And you say, you know what, things have to be different next time. And that's a little bit of what we have reflected in this. And maybe, maybe there needs to be more of a reflection. Maybe we need to have more conversations about that. We can have those conversations about making the church what we believe God needs it to be. But what we can't do is give up on God's design. If something's not right in the church, if there's a vulnerability that's being exploited, if there's a lack of love in one way, shape, or form, if there's a, a, a lack of the brotherly love that we would expect, the best thing that you can do is talk about it so that we can identify it, recognize whether or not it's, it is there or it isn't there, and we can become what we need to be. Because we need brotherly love. We need hospitality. We need to weep with them that weep, to rejoice with them that rejoice. We need to be that for one another. We need that in our lives. We need that investment. God forbid that you and I should fail to live in this design and love and commitment one to another because it's done so wrong and we're afraid. God forbid that we should fall short of this, of God's best for us. And so for we who are then joined in this fellowship and for we who have bound ourselves one to another in such a way, the question is, how are we doing? Is our church what it ought to be? And if it's not, let's make it what it ought to be. Let's get those things figured out. Let's get them corrected. Let's make sure that love, brotherly love continues. Let's make sure that we, are, we have a, a spirit of hospitality. Let's make sure that we rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with them that weep. In honor, preferring one another, pursuing fervent hospitality, is our church living up to God's design for us? And may we, as God's people, renew in our hearts this commitment Renew, renew in our hearts our commitment to God by renewing in our hearts our commitment to one another. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. 
More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.